I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello and thanks for your time. I'm Mark Kenny and I'm delighted to have one of the country's most thoughtful legislators on Democracy Sausage, the outgoing independent Senator for South Australia, Rex Patrick. But before I welcome him, let me first bring in Dr. Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU, regular, of course, here on Democracy Sausage. Maria, I've been struck by just how different the country feels with Anthony Albanese visiting Jakarta and Penny Wong leaning into the region, the government's manager of business, even Tony Burke, flagging extra parliamentary questions and cooperation with the now massively expanded crossbench. And of course, Burke, who is inter alia the arts minister as well. Remember the arts? They seem to get a bit forgotten during the pandemic, but, uh, um, and they were even, even forgotten, I think, when, uh, Peter Dutton released his, um, his, his front bench lineup. I think the first draft of that did not have an arts, oh dear. an arts shadow in there, which is kind of like a metaphor for really, you know, that well, whole period. Yeah, yeah. I guess that is quite a quite a Freudian slip there. Um, I guess it t- sort of says something about the uh, the priority placed on um, on the arts in in recent times. Yeah, I think you're right. There has been a, a sort of tone uh, shift in the way um, politics is being conducted. Part of that is probably just that it's a, a new government. It's always a little bit um, sort of light uh, after yeah. you change governments. Yeah, there's a sort of a honeymoon period yeah. and it's a bit hard to sort of judge the, whether it's yes. the new normal. That said, though, I mean, I do think that um, Albanese, as part of his um, just determined effort to be a different kind of politician, like has set the tone um in a, in a different way and, you know, that what's that saying? Uh, you should start as you want to. You should as be, you mean to continue. As you mean to continue, e- exactly. And I really do hope that they do mean to continue in this vein because um, you, you can't really solve problems when you're constantly looking for political wedges. You know, it's they're actually kind of 
mutually exclusive really right like particularly now like the problems that the country is facing you know we shouldn't we shouldn't um you know the inflation is 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 rising you know the, the sort of effects that that's having on the economy like the government is about to have or is actually really in the face of some serious major economic challenges um, which may undo it to be blunt as, as we record this for example the exactly. reserve bank board is meeting and we expect uh, but pretty much by the time we come out of the studio that a decision will have been taken to hike interest rates again having done so last month just before the election, uh, exactly. and that's supposedly going to go on all through this year. And uh, I've seen major banks talking about uh, the overwhelming, or, or what was it, the vast majority, I think, was the uh, the term used by one of the banks of its customers will be able to handle these increased payments. But, of course, I think Peter Van Onselen pointed out vast majority generally means about 90%. That's a sort of a, a working assumption there. That means about one in 10 people, at That's least, right. you know, on their admission, are literally going to be, uh, you know, in, in such trouble that they will uh, presumably default or have to sell or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, the average loan for people who've entered the market recently, is around eight hundred thousand dollars. So, yeah. you know, interest- so they've ended at the top, and they don't, and they will have not. Uh, unlike a lot of um, borrowers, they will have not got ahead on their mortgage in recent times because they no, haven't had long enough to do so. That's right. They they wouldn't have been able to get ahead. Um, and if real if your real wages aren't increasing, then you know inflation isn't actually kind of helping you either, right? To, yeah. to sort of get ahead of um, of your of your loan uh, repayments, and and a lot of those people are first home buyers, um, which means that they're you know most likely in the sort of family formation period of their lives, and so. Yeah, yeah, like these these will be serious challenges on top of the the gas crisis mm. that the government has to face and there is no guarantee that the electorate will have much uh, patience, I suppose, right? You know, it's um Well, it's it's it, and it's not just patience, is it really? I mean, you're right. Um but patience is almost secondary to wh- whether they can actually survive these circumstances. That's right. If, yeah, if, that's uh, right. If if power bills become unsustained, you know, like just literally make make uh, heating homes and so forth impossible for people at the bottom end of the income scales, um, people lose lose their houses as a result of mortgage stress. Um, then it's not just a question of patience. I mean, it's just you know outright. That's right. Failure. That's right. This is exactly. I mean, we're we're an extremely wealthy society. You know, um, it is kind of ridiculous that we are um, struggling as a as a huge gas exporter to to provide energy to businesses and to homes and to for people to be able to actually have a roof over their heads like it is it says where we have sort of uh, reached i guess well it says something about the crisis in policy and politics that's right in this country. that has been what, brewing what for a long time we are supposedly an energy superpower and we're having an energy crisis i mean what does that tell you it tells you something about the failure of politics right yeah that's right i mean you know um I've got a colleague who wrote a great book called "It's the Government Stupid." Um, rather than <laughs> we, the, we, we spoke to him on this. That's very right. Program. That's right, Professor Keith Dowding. Right, and um, and the point of that book is really that you know people are actually broadly speaking fine. It's it's the laws and the incentive structures that governments uh, create um, that sort of set people up to fail. And housing is a really good one here, right? You know, yeah. if people have large mortgages because the policy settings um, have incentivized <laughs> that. Um, you know, there is there is a portion of the blame that 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 has to be charted to the environment people are in, not just individual choices. 
The other thing that's on back on, it seems, in this whole atmospheric change is that education seems to be back, you know. I mean, again, that was another area that, that took a back seat to the um, during the pandemic. Universities conspicuously left out of, uh, of, of job keeper support. I mean, there was a little bit of extra money, uh, a significant amount of extra money, I suppose you'd say, for research at the beginning, uh, but universities left out of the job keeper program, at least public universities. Um, I don't know if you saw the uh, the vision during the week of the new education minister, Jason Clare, returning to his school. It, it, he put it on Twitter, but it was really quite moving. You know, he was he was the education minister federally going back to a public school that he'd gone to as a kid, and he and he goes up to the to the door of the classroom, and the teacher comes out, and it's his old teacher, and there's this beautiful moment where they embrace, and you can see after they. They they hold each other in quite a long hug, and you can see as they separate, Jason Clare wiping the tears from his eyes. And he's a a kid who's the first in his family to have made it past year ten, let alone gone to university. So, um, yeah, quite, I mean, quite a moving moment. Abs- absolutely, and I, and I think, I mean, that that is actually what distinguishes this country apart from others, right? You know, why why are people proud of Australia? because of the opportunities that it has granted its citizens um, and the fact that someone like Jason Clare is now the Minister for Education, having been the first person to complete high school in his family. And it it kind of points to the sort of crisis across the care sector from cradle to grave, right, Mm. from from childcare through to education, the health system and aged care you know, these female dominated sectors are all in crisis. And so even though labor has huge, uh, storms coming its way, it, it, these are issues and policies that are in their wheelhouse. And so it is an opportunity, right? It, it may be a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. Yeah. One, one, one is reminded that an energy crisis came along not so long after the Whitlam government was, uh, was elected as well. So, you know, the, the OPEC oil That's crisis. That's right. It doesn't um, have to go well. No, it doesn't have to go well. Mind you, there were a few other things in play there as well. Now, look, let's bring in our guest. As I said, it's a great pleasure to have Senator Rex Patrick on the program. Thanks for your time, Rex. It's uh, really good to, and correct, congratulations, I should say, on your record. You're about to leave the parliament at the end of this month. I wonder if I could just start by asking you to give us a, a quick, just to remind our listeners how you came to be in federal politics and um, you know, how long ago that was. Look, thanks very much for having me on. I'll start off by just declaring I am an accidental senator. I <laughs> really never, ever considered myself uh, to ever want to be in politics. And I got drawn in uh, back in the uh, sort of around about 2010. I started helping the then Shadow Minister for Defence, uh, Senator David Johnston, on a topic that was dear to my heart, and that was uh, the future submarine project for the Royal Australian Navy. Somehow uh, that ended up with me morphing across to assisting uh, Nick Xenophon. So when the government, uh, when when um, the Liberal Party gained government in 2013, I was asked to be the naval advisor by David Johnston. Uh, I declined that. Uh, I then started helping Nick Xenophon. When Nick Xenophon decided to leave the federal parliament in 2017, I took his casual vacancy 
And so for the last four and a half years, I've been in the Senate, uh, basically representing South Australia. Uh, and uh, as you've mentioned, it doesn't look like I'll be returned to the Senate, uh, but very, very proud of all of the work that I've done. Uh, I can leave uh, the Senate with my head held high, uh, perhaps rarely as a, as a senator uh, or any uh, member of parliament, uh, not having ever had to compromise my position for a party line. So um, lots and lots of good things that I feel like I've done, uh, but very much accidental, very much not a career politician, uh, and will happily move on now knowing that I uh, don't have to work seven days a week anymore. <laughs> well, you happily move on. That's uh, that's very good to hear. I, I suppose I, I did have in my mind to ask you perhaps later on uh, what, what you're planning to do next, and maybe we will come back to that. But it's, it's nice to hear uh, you uh, describe it in those terms uh, that you are happy to move on. And I'm minded to think that, Maria, it's, you know, perhaps we need more accidental senators, uh, people who Whose, whose life ambition, whose, whose very essence isn't defined by, you know, climbing the political greasy pole. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be to the, to the good. I mean, I think, um, you know, Jackie Lambie, um, has made an important contribution, um, to political life. You know, uh, Ricky Muir, you know, people. Amazingly, who, yeah. Yeah, pe- people, people who didn't want to be professional politicians who, who actually can kind of bring a perspective, um, to, uh, legislation that increasingly is kind of absent from our professionalized political class. Yeah. Now, Rex, uh, one of the things, as you as you mentioned in in your explanation there of how you sort of came to this role, one of the things that's been very dear to your heart, and of course, have an extremely uh, central issue to this nation's security, and it's an ongoing and unresolved question, has been the submarine project, the future submarine project, as you described it. We've all sort of watched the various iterations and undulations that have occurred uh, in this, uh, spectacularly culminating most recently, at least in a political sense, in um, in the in the abandonment of the French contract with the French Naval Group and 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 the famous retort from Emmanuel Macron in uh, in Rome, where he said, "I don't think I know." In in, in respect to the uh, to the PM having lied to him, the the former PM. Um, I guess where where are we with this? I mean, what what can you say? What what's your perspective on it? Total policy failure. That's my perspective. Uh, back in two thousand and nine, we commenced uh, a program to replace our Collins class submarines. The two thousand and nine uh, white paper uh, and the defence capability plan together described a solution whereby by 2016, we would start construction of a submarine in Adelaide and it would be delivered by 2025, which is an important date because that's the date at which the Collins class or the first Collins class needed to retire from service. We find ourselves 13 years into the process, having spent more than $6 billion and we are back uh, now at a study stage to work out whether or not a nuclear submarine for the Royal Australian Navy is a sensible option. It's just unbelievable that we got here uh, and I also find it disturbing that along the way uh, no one's been held accountable for the delay that we have in terms of capability 
to the Royal Australian Navy from a national security perspective or for the taxpayers' money that has been spent. This is the uh, the so-called capability gap that you, you just mentioned, and I want to come back to that in a sec. But, but before that, can I just plumb this this issue of, um, of of the failure and the contributing factors to it? How much of it in your mind is because we have all of these competing imperatives all the time when we're talking about these big defence contracts, you know, the need for them to be built in Australia, the need for them to be built in particular areas, the political imperatives associated with with jobs, uh, uh, you know, local jobs for these big investments. Is this a, um, you know, if you were doing a, a purely um, – if you were forming forming policy and making decisions purely on the basis of what is best for our defence, does it help to have all of these other uh, other issues in play? We know Christopher Pine was very very chuffed about securing twelve submarine contract for for Adelaide, for example, where where, where you're from, and indeed where I'm from. Look, I don't think there's any inconsistency with good. Uh, defence policy and building a submarine in in Australia. We saw difficulties with the Collins-class submarines originally, but we now find ourselves in a circumstance where we have fantastic availability of those submarines, we have a complete understanding of those submarines, we have 90% of the work that is carried out on those submarines done here in Australia. And, and what that means is that in time of conflict, we are, we have a sovereign capability. So um, it's not that uh, things like a requirement to build in Australia uh, are what fetter us from getting a good outcome. Where we have uh, found difficulty is simply taking on too much risk. Starting out with a new design of submarine, that's exactly what we did with the French that is expensive, that is risky, that is time-consuming. Uh, and, you know, the, the French program was a, a $90 billion program. It went from 50 to $90 billion. Um, it, it was to deliver us a submarine in 2035. That was too late. Uh, and we've moved to a new program now that's potentially going to cost us $170 billion and deliver a submarine in 2040. We jumped out of the frying pan uh, and into the fire. And what we need to do, what we desperately need to do, is uh, we need to contain the the wishes of ad, of admirals to have a perfect capability and walk back to something where we say we can go and get something off the shelf. We could have uh, 20 submarines for about $25 billion and then just think about everything else we could procure for the Australian Defence Force everything we could do in terms of resilience uh, for our industry uh, from a national security perspective. We learnt about uh, how poor our resilience was in uh, in the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. All of that could be properly funded um, with the same amount of money that is being set aside to get uh, eight nuclear-powered submarines in 2040. And 2040, I just have to say this, we know what's happening in our geostrategic environment. We know there is tension. It's brewing. It's building every day. Just what we've just seen um, in the last couple of days: news of a uh, an incident uh, above the Ch- South China Sea with one of our uh, P eight maritime uh, surveillance aircraft. 
we've got the situation that um, Frances Adamson, when she was the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, said was the most serious that she had seen in her last uh, 30 years, and yet we're seeking to get a submarine capability by 2040. That's like getting or trying to build the best possible football team to arrive after the grand final. <laughs> yeah, or getting tanks for like 1965 so you can fight in World War II. So that's a great idea. Um, can I ask, Rex, where do we get these 25 subs from? Well, okay, so I would say 20 would be absolutely sufficient and the price might be $25 billion. But we can go to places like Germany, like Japan, possibly Sweden, and buy something that is off the shelf, something that that meets most of our needs. You know, when you guys go and look and uh, to buy a car, you, you kind of write down what your requirements are, whether you want to go off-road, whether you want to have a passenger, uh, you know, passengers in the back, uh, how much boot space you want. And you go looking for a car and you'll never find the perfect car. What you do is you find the best fit for the price that fits your budget. And that's exactly what we should be doing for defence. Now, we can go and buy ourselves, and, and just so your listeners understand, I have been to see on nuclear-powered submarines. I've also been to see on the latest German-designed air-independent propulsion submarines. I've been to see on very small Norwegian submarines. I've been to see on Collins-class submarines. Um, I can tell you that these uh, off-the-shelf submarines are highly capable. They don't do absolutely everything that we might want them to do. Uh, But, for example, when people talk about the range, the range is not that far off what a Collins can do. And you can resolve some of those sorts of shortfalls by operating, as you almost certainly would anyway, out of places like Guam, Yokosuka in Japan, uh, Kota Kinabalu in Malaysia or Changi in Singapore. And you can do so with with one of these off-the-shelf submarines. Uh, You could have one nuclear-powered submarine that that might carry 38 weapons or you can have two off-the-shelf submarines, or probably four for the price of a nuke, uh, that can uh, each between them carry 18 um, uh, uh, torpedoes each. You know, so, and, and, and indeed, in some sense, having four submarines as a problem for a opposing commander is much better than having one uh, submarine, even if it's a nuclear-powered submarine. So we just need to look at this in a measured, calm, logical way and not let our admirals guide us into hugely risky programs that that are designed to, to, to have the perfect outcome. Uh, now, I may have misunderstood you, Rex, and we're going to have to go to a break in a moment, but um, when, when I put it to you that there were some other imperatives that were often considered here, such as local jobs and industries and, and, and building them in Australia, you said that that wasn't incompatible, but then the solution you seem to be putting forward is that we buy off the shelf. Is there an inconsistency there, or have I misunderstood you? No, there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing uh, that stops you buying an off-the-shelf design and building it here in Australia. I see, right? Okay. That, yeah, that's for example what the Greeks did. They built they, they bought a, a German-designed submarines and 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 they built them in Scaramanga in in Greece. Uh, the, the South Koreans did exactly that as well. I, I love the idea of building submarines in a place called Scaramanga. It reminds me of <laughs> there was a Bond film with. Him in it, wasn't there? I 
have no idea. But hey, Rex, I have one more question. So is that what we were planning to do with the Japanese subs, the ones, the Tony Abbott ones? Yes, that was uh, what, what uh, Tony Abbott, uh, Abbott had originally proposed, and that was to, to buy an off-the-shelf capability. Uh, the, the difference was he was intending to, to build them in Japan. Now, that, of course, is an option, but in my view, you are much better off where you can building that sort of capability here in Australia so you develop the intimate understanding necessary to sustain them throughout their entire lifespan without the need to go back to the to Japan every every couple of months when a problem arises. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Just to finish off on this submarine issue, because it's obviously a big decision time for the government, Rhett Patrick, um, there's, there, there are um, discussions now. The, the new Defence Minister, Richard Miles, has um, conceded this um, so-called son of Collins argument. Uh, what, what is that, if you could just deconstruct that for us, the, the argument for a son of Collins? Well, as I described, we have a extremely good understanding of the Collins-class submarines because we built them here and we're now sustaining them here uh, using Australian industry. Uh, the idea is that we take the shell of that submarine and all of the knowledge that we obtained in relation to that submarine and, and perhaps design something uh, that is a modern version of the Collins-class submarines. Now, uh, to me, that that also involves risk. That involves a considerable period of time where we have to um, you know, properly design uh, the, the, the submarine uh, and then move on to a, a build phase. There is risk involved in that. And it's something that I would have said yes to back in 2009, but we're in 2022. Let's not repeat exactly the mistakes of the past where we take on risk and end up not building a submarine for another 10 years. Uh, that is harmful to national security. So if we bought um, a design off the shelf today, when would we have a boat in the water? If you didn't change too much, you could uh, build a submarine starting uh, in, I'd say, about 2024 and you'd have it in the water 
by 2026, uh, 27. Wow. Uh, the Collins-class submarines uh, were went from a greenfield site in Adelaide from contract signature to delivering of her submarine in six years. Now, that was where we didn't have any capability at all. We have fantastic capability in Adelaide, uh, uh, so I, I think we could shorten that time frame. Uh, and, again, the cost of doing so would be significantly cheaper and enables to, us to do so much more with our defence budget uh, uh, if if we went down that particular pathway. Just uh, finally on this, uh, one of the arguments for getting out of the French contract when we did, the, the government suddenly gleefully grabbed onto, was that uh, by the time the uh, the French submarines were were delivered, they started being put into service. They were going to be, you know, getting close to obsolete just because of the movement of technology in in this area and developments in um, in um, I suppose military practice. Is that still a danger? I mean, the, the, the trouble with these things is they're huge investments. They have long time uh, uh, sort of delays associated with when you first decide to do it, and then have the actual capa- capability. Is the future of um, of naval warfare, for example, uh, a lot of unmanned sort of craft, and that the old idea of submarines is? I mean, we see see drones doing extraordinary things. Presumably, they're underwater drones as well. Uh, just on the drones. Uh the drones that we see uh, that play particularly successful roles, roles in military conflicts are airborne drones and they're connected by very high-speed uh, UHF, EHF uh, uh, links. When you go underwater, none of that is possible. You have to basically communicate by way of acoustics. Uh, that's much, much slower. It's like going back to the days when we all had modems. Um, and that's the problem, is it's just not, uh, the, the connectivity is not there for underwater drones. There is a place for underwater drones uh, in the future, perhaps as, uh, uh, as a, 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 an attachment uh, complementing uh, a, a fully manned submarine, but I don't think they will ever replace uh, a fully manned submarine that can deploy extremely long distances. Uh, just in relation to... Um, the issues of timeliness uh, and the fact you don't want to have these things go obsolete. The whole point of getting an off-the-shelf submarine is you go across to a place like Germany or Japan, you look at the submarine that they have, it is a current design of submarine, and within a couple of years you're constructing that. And uh, within five years, that's in the water. Uh, In the background, you'll find those particular companies are updating uh, their, their technologies across their 10 or 15 customers. The Germans have multiple customers. They're always upgrading. So it's a bit like going and buying a car where you buy the latest car, you get the latest features. In five or six years' time, you get the next model and it's got all the latest features. Uh, that's the benefit of, of going down the off-the-shelf pathway. Could we have uh, said to the French, seeing as we've decided to go down this nuclear path, could we have said to the French, which after all does have nuclear submarines, um, we want to change to nuclear? Was that Because you, you've mentioned Sweden, you've mentioned Japan, you've mentioned Germany, but not France. I haven't mentioned France because for their conventional submarines, they don't have what is called air-independent propulsion. They're a little bit behind in that regard. Um, but uh, if uh, you were to go down a nuclear pathway, you know, the French clearly have a Barracuda submarine 
that our attack class submarine was purportedly de- designed from, or at least that was the, the the lineage, and we could have switched across to that. I think we didn't because of two reasons. I think really the Australian government were trying to get out of a program which was troubled, um, and uh, you know that they built this relationship with the French despite what was being said by Scott Morrison at his press conference. The attack program was behind schedule and it wasn't meeting expectation. Uh, and so so I think the government walked away from the relationship as much as it did from the submarine. Someone should have um, told Greg Moriarty, surely. I mean, he didn't. He seemed to be uh, <laughs> convinced that it was going okay and had been having conversations with, with uh, the French group and... You know, it came out of the blue from for him, is from what I can tell, anyway. Well, I think Greg actually did know about it. it was uh, Greg Samet, who was the head of the project, that was unaware of. Uh, oh, okay, I'm mixing up my Gregs. The, you're mis- mixing up your <laughs> Gregs. So Greg is uh, apologies, Greg, uh, Moriarty's, Mr. Moriarty. Yeah, he's he's the secretary, and I'm sure he was aware of the submarine, um, the, the AUKUS submarine um, uh, inquiries. Uh, Greg Samet, uh, former. Submariner uh, was leading the program, and and he wasn't aware. Um, and uh, you know, this purportedly done to to ensure that he could, uh, in good faith, continue working with the uh, with the French. Right <clears throat> now, let's move on to um, the current challenge that Maria mentioned before uh, the whole gas crisis. Uh, you you were actually involved in this uh, in the original uh, creation of the trigger the Australian Domestic Gas Security Mechanism, which there is a you know fairly convenient line being run from the now opposition saying that the current government should just pull the trigger and resolve this crisis. That's not going to happen, is it? Uh, look, uh, first, can I just start off by saying there is no crisis in, ter- in terms of gas supply. Australia makes more gas than you can poke a stick at. We've, we've, just, we've got an abundance of it, about 2.5 times uh, the domestic need is, is actually extracted from uh, Australian sources. Uh, the, the problem we actually have is that most of that gas is exported. Exactly. Um, and, the, yeah, that, that is the problem. It's contracted uh, when, though, right? Well, part of it is contracted. Uh, a lot of it is contracted. But um, all of this took place... Uh, sort of somewhere around the sort of 2000 to 2015 mark. That's when the gas trains turned on. That's when we first started to see shortages in supply. See, the companies that actually commence these gas trains um, uh, or, or produce these gas trains to, to, to export LNG made commitments to the Australian government that, that, that their activities exporting gas would not de- would not affect the domestic market. Now that's important to know that because later on, when we seek to change something, which we have to now, um, people will cite the the word sovereign risk. That is not involved here because what happened was those gas companies failed to meet their undertaking to the Australian government and the Australian people that the the domestic gas market wouldn't be affected. Moving forward, what we saw was that in order to meet these overseas contracts, uh, the gas companies who who were unable to um, properly supply the export market because 
their fields weren't meeting the original expectations that they had for the supply of gas, they went to the domestic market and basically sucked up all of the gas. That's when I got involved. I was an advisor to Nick and we had people coming to our office and saying, uh, back to, to Nick Xenophon uh, and myself, it's not that the price is too high. We simply can't even get an offer. They couldn't even get gas at any price. That's when uh, uh, Nick uh, started talking to the government. Uh, he had some leverage on some legislation. I was uh, down in the detail talking to Matthias Corman's team, and that's when we negotiated this Australian Domestic Gas Security Mechanism, the so-called trigger. And the way it was constructed uh, was uh, that AEMO and the ACCC would examine what the expectations were in relation to supply in the next year, and if there was going to be a shortfall, the government could pull a trigger that effectively stopped the exports, the export of gas, uh, and allowed the minister to basically control how much went overseas. That was introduced, and it, it, it had the effect, because the gas companies never wanted this trigger to be pulled, that the, the gas companies then made sure there was enough supply in the market. That was back in 2017. Right. So this, so, so it, when its major kind of policy effect in the immediate term was to uh, sort of sit there as, a, um, as a, a, a sort of a Damoclesian sword hanging over the, um, the gas companies. They know that if they don't keep the supply up to Australian, Australians you know, having access to their own gas, that if there is insufficient supply, that that trigger could be pulled and by that they would behave. That's correct. Except what they did between 2017 and, and 2019, they kept the supply really tight. And what that meant was the price was still high. So this is a cartel that were uh, working to make sure they could extract as much uh, price for, their, for the gas um, that they possibly could. And again, in 2019, I, uh, at this time as a senator, met with uh, Matthias Cormann, uh, uh, Scott Morrison had just been re-elected and wanted to uh, have tax cuts and I had a casting vote in that. And what happened was that uh, uh, I sat down with Matthias and said, look, I don't want to be in a situation where we cut taxes, that returns money to people's wallets, and then the gas companies reach into the, the, those wallets and take the, the exact same money out because of this supply problem that we had. You know, it is gas that sets the price of electricity and, of course, it is the gas that uh, is used in a lot of our manufacturing. Uh, so at that point, the government agreed two things. One of them was to revisit the Australian domestic gas security mechanism to include a price aspect to it. And the second thing uh, that the government actually committed to me in writing was to introduce a, a gas reservation policy, which is the proper fix. So instead of having the sword, as you described, hanging over the market that can be pulled, what we really need to do is exactly what Western Australia does and, and what Western Australia does is says you can have access to West Australian gas, uh, to the gas companies, but you must make sure that 15% of the gas that you extract is returned to the domestic market. 
So there's always an abundance of gas in West Australia. They pay somewhere between $5 and $6 per gigajoule, whereas on the East Coast, we're seeing people paying $40 per per gigajoule, spiking on the spot market up to $400, somewhere between $418 and $800 per gigajoule. Uh, What we need to do is we need to to move to a gas reservation policy. Now, Madeleine King, the new Resources Minister who is a West Australian, says that uh, gas reservation policy in WA was uh, negotiated as the industry itself was created um, and that retrofitting the uh, Australian uh, gas sector, gas energy sector, with a a reservation mechanism now would be supremely difficult. You, You reject that argument? I reject that argument because of, because of the point that I made at the start, and that was the gas companies gave an undertaking when they commenced the gas trains to the Australian government and to the Australian public that they would not interfere with the domestic market. They have breached that undertaking, and so the Australian government is open to a remedy in relation to that, and that remedy can be a gas reservation policy. Now, we must understand a couple of things here. Firstly, the gas belongs to us, as you mentioned, and Australians are entitled to have access to their gas at fair and reasonable prices. Uh, That's the first point. The second uh, point is that we must put national interest ahead of any commercial interest. If we don't address this problem, and and what we may see happen is a short-term resolution, and then in a year's time, we come back around the table uh, to have exactly the same issue again, and the discussions uh, take place again, and we'll have this sort of perturbation uh, from here on in. We just need to solve this problem. The gas companies uh, will have to accept a gas reservation uh, policy if the government has the courage to introduce it. They have the ability to, to say this is not sovereign risk, you breached an undertaking. Uh, and I might point out that just recently in the Parliament, the, the, the Australian Parliament uh, enacted laws that imposed a levy on oil and gas producers in relation to stranded assets. The gas industry were up in arms saying this is awful, this creates sovereign risk. In the end, they've just accepted it. They, they are making a killing here. And they are going to stand their ground and try and protect it. But we have to have politicians that stand up to that and stand up for the Australian public and uh, implement this uh, gas reservation policy as we see has been done in Western Australia. Uh, That is the only proper outcome uh, from uh, from the current crisis. Maria, I'm wondering whether perhaps there's an opening here for a government to be saying to that sector... Um, we're going to have a gas reservation policy or we can have a windfall tax as they've just introduced in the UK, which is uh, you know, a, 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 an idea that's got a pretty checkered political history in this country, as we know, with the resources, super profits tax and the, uh, you know, the political difficulties associated with that. But that's, a, that's what's happening. As Rex uh, says, the, uh, these companies are making a mozza out of this so-called crisis so perhaps that perhaps that's yeah, it's the, the point. Government, yeah. stupid, Which isn't do you it? want? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, these companies have a social license, right? Um, and if they're and these are our public goods, right? These are public assets, um, some of which we have invested considerable 
monies into allowing these companies to divest them, uh, to invest in them. So, um, yeah, I could see why the minister says it's difficult. It's politically difficult. But I don't actually, from what you've said, Rex, and from, you know, our basic understanding of how regulation works, um, it doesn't seem like it's actually difficult in in legislation or in 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 the acts of government. And and ultimately, what is the role of government? It, it is there to break monopolies. It is there to, um, you know, provide um, or to keep the ring, as Menzies kind of put it. Right? It's not it's not there to service um, big business, and it's not necessarily there to, um, you know, provide uh, sinecures for mates. Um, so. It will be interesting to see how Labor chooses to navigate this path because, you know, they're obviously keen to be seen as a sort of safe pair of hands and as a friend to business and they're obviously clearly um, afraid of um, what happened with uh, the miners. But, you know, when you've got a situation where a whole bunch of voters who, who might be interested in voting for Labor the next time around or who might have voted Labor this time around might not if if their power bills are so high that they can't afford to heat their homes. It's about being fair, okay? It's about being fair to the Australian public in terms of what they pay for the gas, but also being fair to the companies that have made investments. No one begrudges them making a profit, but they have to be reasonable. Uh, they have to recognise that this is our gas. And it's one of those advantages our country has is an abundance of energy that should allow our manufacturing base uh, to uh, have access to to cheap energy and we're we're foregoing that Uh, and that's a that's a fundamental mistake on behalf of any any Australian government to uh, to forego that uh, that advantage. Yes, and it's interesting to see, you know, terms like sovereign risk bandied about, uh, you know, pretty abstract terms in a sense for the average person in the street, particularly if they're, uh, you know, going home to a freezing cold house because they can't afford their energy bills. I don't think sovereign risk is perhaps on the top of their list of concerns. Um, Rex, in the uh, short amount of time we've got left, I, th- I, I had a, a, I still have in front of me a list of a few things I wanted to talk to you about, but uh, probably not going to get to all of them. So perhaps I'll wrap it up into a bit of an omnibus sort of question. Ask you, what are the big changes that you've seen in your time in politics? Uh, I'm thinking, obviously, climate change is really, um, has a political issue, has finally started to kind of mature, it seems. Um, there's also the anti-corruption uh, push, which you will have seen and 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 been behind. Um, and, of course, the whole rise of, of women as a, a, a sort of a politically important constituency. Um, have I missed anything? Look, I think uh, they're all very important issues. To, uh, what I'll say is tacked on to... Uh, the corruption-related issues, the integrity issues, is uh, a need for openness and transparency. And I think uh, we saw in the last parliament a highly secretive government um, that that uh, you know, liked to do everything behind closed doors, uh, liked to keep things from the public when in actual fact uh, we understand that governments do everything uh, that they do on the public coin and for public purpose, and there needs to be a level of transparency. It sort of ties in with the integrity, um, the integrity issues, uh, but but um, it's a fundamental in a democracy, and I think we 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 started to lose that in the in the last parliament. And I'm hoping 
that you know that that was an area that I pushed very hard for in the forty sixth Parliament. Uh, I won't be in the forty seventh Parliament, and I hope there's not such a strong need. Uh, the government would do well to uh, look back on what happened with the Morrison government and take a more open and transparent approach moving forward. And what next for you? Is it? Um, yeah, I mean, do you do you rule out the possibility of a return into politics, perhaps at the state level, or perhaps uh, coming back into the Senate? Is that um, uh, an impossibility or something you'd consider? Look, I mentioned at the start, I was an accidental senator, um, so it's not something at the top of my list to 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 come back into politics. And I might say that it's. It's very, very difficult. I ran a campaign as an incumbent uh, that had a lot of backing from a lot of people. Uh, I probably spent two to three hundred thousand dollars in the election campaign, and end, ended up not being successful. Uh, it would be so much harder to run to try and get back into the Senate, at least, uh, w- without incumbency. And I think uh, over the, the over the next few. Uh, elections, we may well see the disappearance of 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 independence. You know, we've got the Jackie Lambies, we've got the. You mean in the Senate or generally speaking in the, in the Senate? Yeah, I think I think in a in a smaller constituency, uh, a, a smaller electorate, I think it is possible to make contact with everyone across the electorate uh, and be known. Mm-hmm. Much much harder when it involves an entire state. You know, for me as a South Australian. Uh, Senator, I had to get something like 150,000 votes uh, for someone in New South Wales. It's significantly more than that. Uh, we see uh, they say if you want to if you want to be a senator, go to Tasmania, where exactly. the quote is about where the quote is about. They're 50, all senators. 000. Yes, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah and yeah, Jackie, uh, yeah, Jackie will likely remain because she she is in a smaller uh, qu- uh, quota electorate. Uh, I just think it. Uh, I think it's uh, going to be difficult. Um, m- moving forward for me, look, I've still got about twenty something days as a senator, and if I said to some South Australian walking down the street, "Hey, I'm going to make you a senator for twenty days," I think they'd take that and they'd do as much as they can, and and that's what I've been doing. I've been focusing uh, and still working as a senator, and I will up until the thirtieth of June, and. From that point on, I'll then start to think about what I may do. It may involve um, continuing some work in the public space. It may get be it may be me going back to technical work. Uh, I have an engineering background, or I may uh, just buy a yacht and sit twelve miles off the coast, so I don't <laughs> have to. So I don't have to deal with the federal government or the state government, and especially local councils. That's terrific, um, and very quickly. Because uh, you did mention Jackie Lambie, uh, who would you pick out of the people you've worked with uh, in the in the legislature in either house that has really impressed you? Oh, look, there's a a number of people. Look, I was really impressed with Matthias Corman. Um, I didn't always agree with him, but he was a sort of guy who who um, you could have a, a a very robust debate, and you could walk away with not agreeing. And the relationship be absolutely one hundred percent intact, um, uh, and it was, you know, it was transactional, good relationships. Um, other really good players I'd mentioned in the in the um, in the Senate, uh, Katie Gallagher. I think she's 
she's a good player. Jenny McAllister, I think the Labor Party has uh, not promoted someone, a woman who's got, you know, just... She just has so much intellect. Um, she's a, an intellectual giant and uh, sadly uh, hasn't been promoted. Murray Watt, another another good guy uh, in the Senate. Lots of good uh, good people in the Senate, um, uh, including across on the other side. Look, I've always gone on well with Anne Rustin. I thought she was highly, highly competent and was perhaps not utilised as well as what she could have been by the Morrison government and not listened to as much as she should have been by the Morrison government. Um, there are very few people that I don't get along with in the in the in the Senate as I as I depart, um, and I think that's how it should be for everyone. We have differences of political opinion, um, but everyone remains uh, friendly and respectful. Um, sadly, most people go into politics; they're all good people, um, and that but they do get trapped within party lines and they do have to compromise and sadly their pathway to uh, being able to exercise uh, power means you have to kind of work with the party, make a bunch of compromises, um, keep quiet about certain things until such time as you're given a ministry or a shadow ministry uh, and that's just the way it works uh, on the, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, with, with, with parties and people who enter into parties. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rex, for coming on Democracy Sausage. It took too long and uh, toward the end of your tenure, as you say, but uh, thanks for uh, your efforts, for uh, your diligence uh, in the in the Senate, uh, beavering away there on, on important issues and, and, and for going to some of those for us today. Thank you very much. And thanks, Maria, to you as always. Um, we'll see you next week. I think we're going to be talking, hopefully we're going to be talking about the election and some some of the you know some details of, of of the advertising campaign for the independence and and all of that sort of stuff so look out for that that's democracy sausage for this week bye bye 